Charting a course for sustainable space, this is Space to Grow, an Astro Scale and Market Scale podcast with your hosts, Chris Blackerby and Charity Whedon. Hey everyone, this is Chris Blackerby, Astro Scale COO, and welcome back to Space to Grow, a podcast that's focused on what it will take to see the new space economy thrive. Uh, first, for those of us who are just joining this as your first podcast, I urge you to check out our first couple of episodes where we lay out our reason for doing this uh, and talk about our goals for it. Basically, uh, we're focused on these factors that are going to make the space economy grow, technology, societal interest, finance, policy, government, commercial interaction, all of this, and and looking at how all of these aspects play into what's going to be the, the new space ecosystem. And we're doing this by diving into conversations with experts from around the world who are going to be our guides on this. Uh, as a reminder, uh, us here at Astroscale, we're focused on orbital sustainability, uh, debris removal, in-situ space situational awareness, life extension of satellites and geo. Uh, we're excited to see this, the growth of space, but we want it done sustainably. So that's the focus of, of all of these podcasts. And uh, and today we've got a we've got a great episode for you. Um, as always, I'm joined here by my partner in space sustainability, Charity Whedon, the vice president of global space policy at Astroscale. Hey, Charity. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm fantastic. <laughs> so we just had a really cool conversation on uh, on space policy. And, uh, and this is uh, this is your uh, your area as well. So um why don't you give us a little yeah. preview of what people can hear on the, the sure. chat we just had. You know, as we talk about growing the international space economy, people get very excited about the commercial side. Trillion dollar dollar signs are floating through their heads and it's very exciting. But while commercial space potential is huge, it cannot be done without government. In fact, in many cases, regulation enables commercial progress. Um, we'll talk a little bit about that uh, in this following podcast. There are many facets to the policy side here. There's the regulatory environment, research and development funding, security policy, missions, space situation awareness, behaviors, best practices. I could go on and on. Um, <laughs> but uh, our guest today is going to help unpack some of the uh, critical issues of today and give us a little sneak peek what they think in the future, big policy issues will be. Yeah, it's it's such a big topic. And, and as a reminder, too, this is just a uh, kind of setting the table for a deeper dive that we'll do into this, this issue as well in future episodes and future seasons of Space to Grow. We just want to give a top-level overview. So uh, we're talking with uh, Regina Peltris from uh, the German Aerospace Center, uh, who has a long history of um, experience focusing on SSA and the intersection between uh, policy and, and operations. Uh, so it's a, it's a great initial cut on, on space policy, but I think you'll agree, Charity, that this is, this is just a taster of what we want to get into with future policy discussions. Oh, yeah. It is just a drop in the bucket, I feel. Cool. Well, uh, thanks again for joining us, everyone. Enjoy our conversation with Regina Peltris. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Space to Grow. This is Chris Blackerby, and our guest today is going to help us dive into issues of policy as it's related to the new space economy. Uh, with us today is Regina Peltris. Uh, greetings, Regina. Hi. Hi, Chris and Charity. Pleasure to be with you. Great to have you here. 
so uh, Regina is a senior policy officer from the German Aerospace Center, DLR, currently on secondment to the Ministry of Economic Affairs and Industry. And Regina has focused for much of her career on space situational awareness, SSA, and the intersection between uh, policy and operations in space. Uh, until September of 2020, Regina served as the head of delegation to a consortium of EU member states that was implementing the EU Space Surveillance and Tracking, the EUSST initiative. And she co-chaired a decision-making body on uh, handling the, the foresight studies of emerging issues at the intersection of space safety and security. She has a PhD uh, from Kingston University and human systems integration, space systems, and systems design. So she is ideally uh, suited to help us dive into these issues of policy, particularly from a European perspective. But what we'd like to do is talk about how that also impacts just the, the global development of, of space. So uh, as always, uh, I'm here with uh, Charity Whedon as well. Hello. Hey, Charity. I'm here. Um, and Charity is our Astroscale's vice president of global space policy. So we're going to um, geek out today. Seriously. Oh, I'll just sit back and I'll just sit back and listen to you guys get into the space <laughs> policy issues. I'm excited. I look forward to. Um, <laughs> so, um, Regina, you know we're focused here on uh, on space policy and business. So we're gonna we're gonna dive into all of these questions on on how policy impacts uh, the future space economy. But I I first wanted to start with a kind of broader question. Uh, I don't know if it's like an existential question, but what in your mind is is space policy? Like, how would you even uh, define it as as you see it? Thanks so much, Chris. I think I think this is a really really um, interesting and tricky, but also really really important question. I think on uh, for someone in in my position, it means um, constant dialogue. Space policy for us means that we constantly have to engage with. Um, other actors um, to negotiate and to, to reconcile different interests and somehow find ways on very different levels um, with different, uh, different uh, ministries, different actors, different agencies to come to some kind of shared understanding on assumptions and also on goals of what we want to do in space. And ideally, we, we then manifest um, these, these ideas and um, articulations, so or we formulate policy, if you will. And then I think um, the uh, tricky um, aspect is always to implement it and to furnish it with the right uh, budgets and to um, provide oversight and to uh, see, see through the implementation and then go back to the loop and formulate new policies. So I think it's, it's a cycle and um, a, um, a constant engagement. That's a very comprehensive, um, you know, answer to what is effectively a very complicated um, way of making decisions, isn't it, Regina? It's uh, it's difficult to to boil it down. Uh, sometimes I think of it as what should we do and why should we do it, um, and that can manifest right in, in speeches, in paperwork, documents, um, budgets, etc. Um, before we dive to the details of policy, we'd like to discuss your personal journey and how you got here today. What inspired your interest in space policy? So I um, transited from research. I started out in research and um, transited into space policy um, um, some time ago. So my, my first um, 
um, really work in space with, uh, was in pre-phase A studies and concept studies and, and future system studies um, for you know, exploration class missions, um, looking at extreme analogs. Um, you're really fiddling with, with ideas and concepts of, of faraway things that didn't necessarily have to be implemented um, right now. And then I um, moved a little bit more into the um, operational side at the intersection of um, research and operations. I worked um, at, the, uh, at ESA's control center at the European Space Operations Center as a research fellow in the uncrewed domain, so satellite operations, looking into uh, resilience of um, uh, flight control teams and mission control teams in critical mission phases. So I was observing a lot of operations and um, comparing collaborative practices from other high-risk uh, domains. And as part of this, this research and, and this journey, I realized that a lot of um, leverage and a lot of um, change that you can affect us. Obviously, there's, there's a lot of things you can do in the operations floor and in organizational policy, but um, uh, a larger scale implementation of any tweaks that you want to see in operations or that you as a community want to see needs, uh, well, they happen on the policy level. And this was kind of how I then um, became more interested in, in the policy side. And then five or six years ago, I, I transited from from this side, so mainly looking into safety and, and resilience of operations, more to the security side and more to policy, and uh, specifically looked at SSA and the intersection of policy and operations in, in multilateral um, collaboration for SSA. So it was really, really in like a yeah, like a like a journey from research moving into policy, which is I guess for some at least like quite a traditional uh, path for some researchers to move. Yeah. It's great to be able to you have that background doing the research side, so you you can relate to what's necessary to bring to the policy conversation. So it seems like a a good fit, obvious yeah. fit. And I I always felt that there's um something that um you know you you think about at some point as to whether you want to be inside the machinery or outside. And I think um, a lot of experts, even in the policy domain, um, you know, for instance, work at think tanks, or you can be in a research institute and you can. Um, create uh, analyses that inform or shape, even shape policy, and you can engage with a lot of different topics. And on the other side, um, if you're in uh, transiting to to government or to the public sector, in that sense, um, you you may be a little bit more restricted in what you can look at and uh, and and what you can engage with and who you can talk to. But um, you you do have someone who needs to buy default of the chain of command or the food chain will have to listen to you even if you're quite restricted. And I think this trade-off mm. has been uh, has been quite interesting to move from an area where you can really have unlimited engagement with certain topics to an area where you're a little bit more constrained, but at least you will you will know that someone needs to read uh, read your report. If they act on it, it's a different story, <laughs> but <laughs> I think yeah, that's... You have, yeah. you can can make that impact. I mean, Charity and I both were in the government before as well. So we know what it's like to be inside of that uh, and and uh, trying to affect change from inside. It's, you mm -hmm. know, has its frustrations and, and but it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's exciting to be there doing something. But Gina, I think you made a really good point of just because you don't have the word policy in your job title doesn't mean you don't do policy. There's a, a range of careers and jobs that involve policy work, um, and especially space policy. There's a lot of folks out there 
that see what we do and say, how do I do that? How do I become the space policy lead for A, B, or C? Do you have any advice um, for folks like that, young professionals that want to do space policy but don't know where to start? That's a, that's a really good point. Uh, you're right. Um, in the sense, for instance, that there's a lot of engagement on different levels of policy. So policymaking can even be that you are a operator or like really a spacecraft controller who sits in an ops floor um, most of most of their time and then you get invited maybe to a standard uh, making committee or you're authoring some kind of handbook that makes it into some kind of practice in your organization or your professional community and there's different levels from these bottom-up things to um, you know mid-scale involvement where maybe you contribute to a decision-making process because uh, as an operator or, or a research scientist you testify before a committee, you um, inform with your expertise um, some kind of uh, policy processes and then um, of course there's also the, the other sides where you really um, actively retrain as someone who um, maybe um, goes more into public administration with your previous job role and really takes a policy job. So there's many levels of engagement and I think it's important to encourage um, especially young professionals or, or maybe just to to highlight that the career their careers are not set from from day one you mm-hmm. can of course go straight into policy and become a classic wonk you know do your internships at a number of think tanks and then go on to maybe um, do a graduate degree in, in public administration or in a specific policy field that you have but there's many ways into policies and and I think we need this level of engagement at, at all these different in all these different fora, from small working groups to, you know, to large uh, negotiation teams for for giant uh, international treaties, for instance. That's such great advice. And so, for anyone interested in listening, there's always a way to get into that policy world, uh, no matter where you are now, and and to find your way in. And it's such a fascinating one. Um, I, I do want to uh, go back to. Something actually that Charity said earlier as we dive into these other aspects of, of how it's shaped. Um, we know it takes time. We know there's these multiple facets involved and multiple players. And one of the things, Charity, you said earlier was you're defining policy as what should we do and why should we do it. But who is we? I mean, the we is... The royal uh, we. <laughs> <laughs> what, what Charity, of we. course, thinks we should do. <laughs> Um, so, you know, it's not space obviously isn't governed by a single entity and there's obviously a, a, a you know, national government impact and there's international organizational impact and there's, there's allies and there's others. And so what should we all be doing and why should we be doing it is, uh, is, uh, such a relative question, of course, and policy, especially with a domain like orbital regime, you know, outer space, it's, 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 it's not governed by one entity. And so you have to, by definition, be working with all of these other groups. And I know, uh, Regina, you've done that a lot with the EUSST. Um, how, how do the national actors out to the regional actors like EU out to international organizations, how do, how do you work together to drive, uh, a space policy that's going to be beneficial for, you know, as, as many as we can to help develop space for humanity? So I think this is a this is a really excellent question because I completely agree that we well first of all we do not like you say have a overall let's say global governance agency for this we have many global bodies and fora where we can discuss and trade off our different interests and 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 reconcile them but we 
do not, um, including not not uh, in Europe or in you know smaller scale uh, communities, um, we don't necessarily share the exact same interests in, in being in the space domain. And in this sense, I'm really including the entire community of government actors, commercial, private uh, enterprise, um, civilian, military, scientific actors. So we're all super diverse and we, we somehow need to talk. And, um, and that's for policy. And, and what's helping a lot, I think, um, and there are a number of initiatives in, in that regard, is that um, we we try um, bottom-up approaches in addition to top-down. So top-down, you know, would be the classic um, treaty systems or um, uh, larger accords that you sign together after long preparations and, and negotiations. And bottom-up approaches um, would be uh, a little bit more light touch on the on the um, uh, legal side or the regulatory side. For instance, um, our cooperation in Europe for European space surveillance and tracking, you know, of course, we are based on, we have a legal basis, um, which was passed by the European Parliament and the European Council in 2014. But we work um, on a uh, bottom level together with a number of member states and uh, European agencies to um, create something um, that implements policy ideas that we have. So in this case, we network our sensors to um, you know, provide uh, conjunction warnings to, to European users. But we do this because we share the underlying assumption and the uh, overarching go uh, arching goal in Europe to, uh, you know, to, to enhance the security and the safety of and the resilience of the orbital environment and the space infrastructure that we already have. So I think there's, um, there's ways to collaborate um, from the operations uh, floor upwards. And, and translate um, this multilateral collaboration that you have on different levels. So from the ops floor to the agency, to the space agency sides, to the ministerial sides, and then further up. So that's that's one of the examples how, how we do it in Europe. And then so how does that then translate to, say, international organizations? So you've gotten up to that, uh, you know, EU regional type of policy area. Then how does that go to things like, say, the UN or World Economic Forum or other larger groups that also have a role in, in this? Of course. So I think this would, um, something like what we're doing on the EU side would be, either you can look at it as an as an analogy for other multilateral um, fora or engagement and see how the challenges perhaps that we face um, would also be faced by others, for instance, on data policy or, um, uh, you know, certain types of... Um, division of labor, who does what, especially when we're talking about large-scale ground infrastructure for, for space security, such as SSA sensors. But I think um, this system is really, really different from, from other global fora that we have from the UN, which is, you know, not operational, but you really, um, uh, you're really, uh, it's a forum for us to have a dialogue. And I think we need to plug in these different bottom-up approaches that we have, by the way, also on the industry side, um, with, you know, operators sharing SSA data, for instance, um, together, we, we need to find ways to plug these efforts into the larger scheme of um, the larger structures that we have, for instance, in the UN. And one um, way, for instance, is that we uh, highlight what we do operationally on this um, smaller scale. Our different delegations then highlight this, for instance, as part of the um, implementation of the long-term sustainability guidelines in UN Copus, for instance. That would be one one example of how these two things can inter 
interlink or dovetail to an extent. Given the, you know, the fact that European Union um, collaborates daily, not just on space, but, you know, every, pretty much every item, it uh, seems to me that Europe is uniquely qualified to f- figure out that collaboration piece, uh, especially when it comes to space. But I'd like to, you know, we're a podcast about developing space as a sustainable business and that important intersection between policy and technology. So how do you feel governments writ large, but maybe Europe in particular, uh, are collaborating and working with the commercial sector to incentivize the sustainable development of space? Can you give us some examples of how Europe is connecting uh, more so with the commercial sector? Thanks, thanks, Charity. So uh, this this intersection is uh, extremely important. Um, for instance, if we stay with the example of um, SSA in Europe and, and particularly EU SST, is that the um, funding that we make available um, from from public uh, from public investment for this is then distributed uh, to a very large extent to um, to the downstream and to into ind- industry, for instance. Um, you know, who build sensors, for instance, or who who uh, provide certain type of sensor availability. So I think um, we we have um, different intersections on, um, for instance, government either distributing funding and uh, distributing uh, calls for for engagement to to the industrial sector. And of course, we also have a lot of um, um, impulses and ideas and technologies that are uh, created in the in the private sector. And I think the challenge at the moment is to to find the right division of labor, as um, you know, you know better than 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 anyone else that we we have this giant ecosystem now and this um, big change in in our utilization in orbit, and mm-hmm. we we need to find ways to get the different actors um, um, to the table. And what I think is going to be quite interesting to see in the next few years, in, in that context, is. Um, to go away maybe um, a little bit from from some of the mantras that uh, traditionally we have um, often uh, used or encountered um, that um, oversimplify a little bit. For instance, um, right now we do have a lot of um, innovation and risk-taking and investment in government in the same way that we have a lot of operators that are very diligent and and uh, sensible and want to have a, um, you know, a pristine orbital environment because it helps their business case and to develop the requisite technologies. So I think this is something that we, we right now have to work on by default because we have so many new um, entrants uh, in, in the domain of orbital util- utilization that are not governmental. And they're, they're really diverse. And, um, you know, we, we shouldn't, or let, let's say we, often group them under one umbrella, industry, we say industry, or at least often in Europe we do, and we, we need to see that there are different groups from spacecraft operators, commercial spacecraft mm-hmm. operators, to commercial integrators of systems, to commercial service operators. So they're, they're very different and they all have very different things that they can bring to the table. Yeah, and, and they have very different motivations uh, and they have very different uh, desires in a lot of ways. And it's it's you see that space is pretty much um accessible to everyone now i mean there's there everyone maybe is a little broad but uh so many it, it's becoming much more democratized uh smaller countries smaller smaller companies uh can utilize it and and more and more commercial uh are coming up so 
uh, as you as you look at this, what do you, in your experience, are the most effective arguments for all of these new actors, whether they be national uh, or commercial, coming into the space sector to conduct responsible behavior in orbit? Um, what do you, when you talk to them, when you talk about this, um, what 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 resonates the most when uh, when when you're talking to them about the need to be responsible? I guess that the most important, or that let's say the first step is to acknowledge that we do have different, like you said, motivations, and to first be in space, and also what to about our behavior in space. So I think these these two things are really fundamental. We need to acknowledge that there's different reasons for, let's say, a um, uh, branch of the military to be in space than for a team of students with a um, uh, with a um, university project to an emerging uh, space uh, power to a long to you know long established um, traditional um, scientific uh, uh, agency, for instance. So all of these are really have really different um, different uh, interests, and I think if we acknowledge that, that's the that's the first step. Because then we, 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 of course, we do share the same values that we we want to keep the uh, orbital environment safe and 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 secure and sustainable. But the question, and I, I really like that point that Charity made very early on in the conversation about why are we doing it. So yes, we do all want sustainability, but the reasons as to why we want that are quite different. Some of us want it because we believe um, space is still or should be a sanctuary, or at least we should be able to preserve it as a global commons. Others want to simply do their operations um, without any disruption because disruptions cost uh, millions of, of uh, euros and dollars every minute that your satellite is tumbling or you have to uh, you know, address a conjunction. Um, and um, others simply, simply um, want to be able to use a, an area that, that is there, that doesn't belong to anyone and that helps us do services and applications for our everyday lives. And I think we see in many other different domains that commercial and government actors and, and lots of different actors can coexist and uh, contribute um, with very different interests to um, the utilization of, of a domain or a resource and uh, still share similar values um, that, they, that they want to see implemented in that area for the longevity and sustainability of that domain. Regina, I'd like to kind of hang on the the topic of behaviors in space. And one cannot know behaviors unless you have some sort of way to verify what those behaviors are. And this is where SSA comes in. How do you feel SSA and behaviors uh, in that verification piece are related? What And what are the most worrying actions in space that you are witnessing and why is it worrisome uh, to you? There's there's two things that are concerning because, well, two, two things that are concerning because they create debris and two strands because some of them may be deliberate, some of them may be inadvertent or uh, uh, not deliberate. And I think um, anything that creates debris, um, which translates more or less directly into uh, uh, risk to assets that we have in certain orbital regimes is detrimental. And I think that that concerns me. In terms of 
verifying this. I think this is one of the big challenges challenges that we that we face in the um, in the coming years. First, because we do have quite a lot of data now. For instance, that Space Fence um, uh, is online, but we do not necessarily have the complete picture yet. And we don't share the entire picture yet with everyone who needs to know it or with mm -hmm. everyone uh, who, who would need to know it in, in a way that still preserves our different security interests. So verification, I think, is a really tricky subject because you need to verify certain things. For instance, you could do SSA for um, completely civilian proximity operations where you service a vehicle, for instance, and you want to have SSA to, you know, to, to ensure what's going on. This is a... Um, uh, to, to understand what uh, you know, whether your operation was uh, successful, for instance, uh, to corroborate the telemetry that you get and, and other pictures that you have. But of course, you can also verify other sorts of behaviors, um, nefarious activities, um, mishaps. Um, you, you need this to attribute. So I think verification and then attribution are the challenges that we face. We, we have to combine different data sources, um, we don't know yet how we will decide on who is the who has the true data. If, for instance, you have two conflicting um, um, sources or conflicting insights, and I think there's some really amazing thinking going on uh, in the community at the moment, um, and also a lot of um, soul searching on you know whether we should, for instance, um, declassify certain things, whether we should share more. I think that's the that's the dictum of today to share more. But how do we do that? And I think especially for verification and uh, ultimately for, for also for characterization of objects in space. That's, that's the challenge. So, and because of the, the inherent, um, you know, security issues that are involved in all of those things you just talked about, I mean, are you, are you confident that we can get to that point where, where we are all able to share? Um, I know, I know there's data sharing agreements, uh, among say the U S and Europe or Japan and, um, various uh, partners like that but it, it like we need all of it <laughs> we need all of the data and so are you uh you know are you confident that we can get to that point i mean i know it's going to take time but what do you think it's true it's going to take time um at right now um you, of course uh, us is sharing is, is the, the most prolific actor in, in sharing um ssa data and um, um, the US um, um, Space Command has, has sharing agreements with a number of actors, including with some of them um, sharing agreements to, for the exchange of um, classified data. In Europe, um, the, in Europe itself, we, um, you know, there are scientific uh, mechanisms to, to share certain data or to make use of certain assets. But for instance, in the, in the EUSST program, we, um, we have a data policy which enables um, Data sharing, and from this experience, we've we've seen how painstaking the dialogue is. How 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 we can make progress step by step, really baby steps, but how painstaking it is to arrive to uh, at the same definitions, at the same assumptions, because we all have different uh, sources for data, different sensor systems, different um, to some extent different standards on how we process data, different uh, propagation models. So we need to find ways to, on the, on the technical side, on how we do that, and also how we you know, exchange maybe sensitive data as well. So there need to be mechanisms for this, but we, we, we see how, how tricky it is. And we don't have a multilateral sharing agreement in Europe. We have, um, uh, it's, it's still bilateral, mill-to-mill -mill agreements. And I think 
if if what you allude to, you know, like a fully fully transparent, uh, recognized space picture, I think is a, is a long time away. But I think all of the actors involved involved see the the merit in in maybe not sharing everything, but definitely sharing as much as as can be shared. There's definitely um, a lot to think about over the say the next decade or so, Regina. Uh, I'd I'd love to, you know, ask you to put on your futuristic thinking cap and tell us what you what do you feel us the space policy community are going to be talking about in ten years time, ten or fifteen years. Oh, day to day discussions. I think at this time we will definitely have made um, um, more progress in in joining up and also in joining, um, you know, the getting the different communities that already exist do what they can and join up. For instance, we will have seen the uh, completion in 10 years of the next um, um, EU space program budget period. So I'm hoping that we we have an increased, um, um, for instance, uh, capability in SSA. We will be talking to additional partners. I think in 10 or 15 years, it's the time at the, at the latest, really, to engage partners who are maybe not at the usual um, um, table for talks at the moment. So we, we do have, of course, a, a very strong dialogue within Europe. Um, there's a very strong dialogue uh, within the communities um, um, of, the, of the combined space operation community, for instance, uh, on the US side and the US partners. There's a strong transatlantic dialogue. Um, there's a strong uh, engagement between different uh, actors on, on the US side and, and, and Asia. But I think we need to bring the other big actors to the table um, that we already have on the on the UN side, of course, but we, we need to see how we how we do policy for operations then. And I, I'm hoping that at this point we have found ways to to talk to each other um, in a in a let's say very tangible and very operations and, and um, implementation oriented way. And I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm hoping in ten years uh, the whole cross border active debris removal situation is figured out as well so that would be good <laughs> i hope so i hope so i mean it's uh it will certainly be i think we'll be talking about that topic uh over the next uh, five to ten years and hopefully that there is some kind of accepted norms and behaviors that we're all following um we'll see i mean i guess you know it's the question of is is space are we going to get to this point in space where there's uh um you know, a lot of times we uh romanticize the idea of space that we can get there and be, I don't say post-national, but we can be a little bit more broad thinking, something like the overview effect. People get up there and they look down and they're like, what are we fighting over? You know, look at this beautiful earth. Um, <laughs> so hopefully. That's right. Yeah. It's it's funny that you mentioned this because I, I always thought the, the overview effect is, is wonderful, but I was always su quite surprised when when we, you know, this this idea of, okay, you don't see borders. Of course, when you go far away, you don't see borders. But on the other hand, you can see very clearly who can, uh, from satellite imagery and, and also when you're a human in space looking looking down, you can see quite clearly who can irrigate uh, their soil, who can't, mm -hmm. you know. Um, I mean, there's, there's, I think there's, we, we do, like you say, romanticize it quite a lot. And I guess what I hope that we don't talk about in 15 years is um, the aftermath of a catastrophic accident that we yet uh, uh, have to witness in orbit, and I think we—I'm really hoping that we—that it doesn't come to that, and that we learn from other domains um, beforehand uh, to set up the right uh, mechanisms to avoid such a such a thing. 
if only we could think of some company that's helping to clean up that stuff. <laughs> Who could that be? I don't know. We'll, we'll get back to you on that if there's anybody that comes to mind. Um, uh, Charity, do you want to go for our, our, our good last question? Yeah, we have a real zinger here for you, Regina. Um, so, so we'd like to have a little fun as well on this podcast and want to know if you could be any character from any space movie, which would it be and why? <laughs> this was, I, I know you, you're, I'm very grateful that you warned me um, <laughs> um, of this question prior. And I, I do have to say, I watch a lot of, um, I watch, watch a lot of films and then of course also um, science fiction, which is space-based or not. But um, I think that was really hard. I definitely do not want to be a human in space because um, I get motion sick and, you know, when you when you don't have your whatever anti-microgravity device going on in, in your spacecraft, I'd, I'd not have a good time. So I don't want to be a human in space. <laughs> so I think I would go with um, probably be the computer on the USS Enterprise who, you know, comments on what's going on, <laughs> has an overview <laughs> of all the different systems, like a systems view of, of, the, uh, of the spacecraft and uh, opens and closes the lift doors. And also reads out the self-destruct uh, sequence when, when necessary. <laughs> that, that is a powerful, powerful <laughs> position, as we've seen with the HAL. Was it HAL 3000? Or... Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, that too. <laughs> <laughs> I like but that. The, by the time we're able to go, though, they're gonna, we'll have developed some kind of um, you know, Dramamine-like patch that can be just inserted into our bloodstream, and you'll be fine. We're gonna, I, you know, motions... gonna, that will be good. <laughs> yeah. Motion sickness is going to be a thing of the past. That's that's our prediction for ten to fifteen. Wonderful. Years. So you'll, you'll I, I also want that for for the ground for one G <laughs> for for carjack. Uh, and back of an air, uh, aircraft too. Awesome. Um, well, hey Regina, it was so good having you on. It's it's such a you know we could talk about this um, for hours. I think there's so many facets. Uh, of, of space policy to dive into, but uh, it was great of you to be able to give us your insight at the at the top level and just give us um, some background as to what you're working on and and where you see us going uh, from policy overall. And maybe we'll uh, have to have you back on again sometime in the future to get more deep into some of this stuff. We really appreciate you bringing a, a European perspective uh, as well, because I think that's you know we're, we what we want to do here on this podcast is bring a global perspective perspective of these issues and topics as well yeah and as i'm sitting in in tokyo and and regina's in europe and charities in the east coast of us yeah. we are certainly global right now so. <laughs> yeah. it was it was super interesting thank you so much for having me and um i completely agree we we, we just get the conversation started and it's it's a, a lot of topics for so many people to talk about well, we'll we'll have to do it again so uh regina Pelsius, thank you again so much for joining us um and uh, good luck in your new secondment. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks.